0: Okay, so I'm just going to consider this episode 304. I've released some special episodes recently, but I consider those outside the usual chronology of the show or whatever, and usually don't tend to assign them numbers. Actually, I had originally planned on releasing that Baphomet documentary I've been working on today as a kind of Halloween special, but it's not even close to finished. I know a similar thing happened with that Deloice's Ape episode, but hey, I finally got that one out, right? I'll finish that Baphomet episode, too. I just don't think it'll be in time for Halloween, unfortunately. And since that currently remains unfinished, I figured let's just do a standard, off-the-cuff news story episode. So this first item isn't really a news story, but nevertheless, it's something that I found interesting. Uh, I'm a big fan of Noel Plum, a, uh, a YouTube atheist, I guess, uh, for lack of a better descriptor. And what I really like about him is he's kind of a salt-of-the-earth kind of guy, not one of these bombastic, in-your-face kind of internet atheists. Uh, he's based in the UK, and I believe by trade, I, I think he's a fireman, Um And he just has a really rational, down-to-earth, good-natured take on things. And to be honest, Noel Plum used to be, or still is, one of my favorite uh, YouTubers or YouTube channels. And there's my chihuahua panting in the background in case you're wondering what that creepy uh, heavy breathing is. Uh, But for some reason, I just fell behind with his content. You know, there's so much content out there online, you know, whether we're talking about podcasts or YouTube videos, that even when you're talking about a content creator that you really like, you know, it it can be hard to keep up with, uh, with everything. But I happened to watch his most recent video, and I believe it was entitled... Jordan Peterson destroys Christianity, and I thought it was a great video, and it was really interesting to hear the take of someone from across the pond on Jordan Peterson, because although we're both English-speaking Western countries, uh, yeah, I I think as a sovereign state you can consider the United Kingdom as a whole country, um... Despite that, a a big difference between shut up, chihuahua. Beside, despite that, a big difference between the U.S. and United Kingdom is that uh, I think it's safe to say the United Kingdom is far more secular. Sure, there's the Sea of E, which uh, I think kind of practices a a rather watered down version of Christianity, and there's probably still a lot of nominal Christians. And even uh, still, saw, you know, a sprinkling of devout Christians, sure. But one thing I've learned through doing this podcast over the years and making friends with listeners and fellow podcasters from across the pond is that they're often very taken back by the high level of religiosity, religious zeal or fervor uh, that's to be found over here. And so it was interesting to hear an Englishman's take on Jordan Peterson, because despite the fact that he's a learned psychology professor who takes this kind of wishy-washy, uh, blurred-line approach to uh, religion, he's still seen by many on the uh, on the right, uh, maybe you'd call them the alt-light or whatever, as this kind of champion of Christianity and of the quote-unquote truths contained therein. And I think there's probably a lot of young devotees of Peterson who think that this is a rather novel approach and... Noel Plum, I think at the heart of his video, is uh, his observation that, no, this isn't really something new, and that from the perspective of an Englishman, this kind of wishy-washy, watered-down approach to Christianity um, is something you know they've been living with for quite some time. And in fact, much of what Peterson has to say sounds startlingly similar to viewpoints you might hear expressed by higher-ups in the Anglican Church, etc. This kind of wishy-washy, airy-fairy, figurative approach to Christianity, while at the same time trying to promote the quote-unquote truths supposedly contained within. And uh, Noel Plum makes the... uh, I believe his actual name is Jim, but uh, I just call him Noel Plum because of the uh, his YouTube channel name. He goes on to make the point that although it, you know, it seems that a lot of Christians are thankful to have a guy in the States, are, are thankful to have a guy like Peterson in their corners or seemingly championing their cause, uh, that he thinks that in the long run— this watered-down figurative approach isn't necessarily conducive to the longevity or preservation of traditional Christianity. And I believe Noel Plum's video is about 18 minutes in its entirety. Um, And I isolated uh, a clip that I think is just under five minutes. And uh, so I think I'll play that for you now.
1: I just like him to keep doing the good work, because whilst it's clear that Jordan Peterson is in many ways good for Christians, which I'll explain a little bit later, and I'm, I'm pleased about that, right, because I want everybody to feel good about themselves, I believe that he is bad for Christianity and for the promotion of Christianity and for the endurance of Christianity within Society, And the reason that I say that is, although maybe from a North American perspective, he may seem like something different, from a British perspective, it's very much more of the same. He is the nature of modern Anglicanism, or at least the nature of the Church of England. Specifically, Peterson is nothing new. In those terms, we are used to in the UK hearing senior figures within the Church of England talk about the Bible um, purely as allegory and of the truths that can be found within it. Even luminaries such as the Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, would say things along these lines that he's less concerned about people's literal belief in what is in there, and I'm not talking about biblical literalism, I'm talking about literally believing in the fundamentals of Christianity, than he is taking these truths from the stories that are within it, that we can all learn something from these stories. And that is very much the way of modern Anglicanism, or at least it is, with the Church of England. Let me read you a couple of of particularly notable examples of that, just to ram home that point and show you that these are senior figures within the Church of England talking about these things in the same kind of ways as Jordan Peterson would do. Okay, so the first one is from a guy called uh, Reverend Dr Giles Fraser, who at the time was the Canon Chancellor of St Paul's Cathedral. It is commonly assumed that Christians don't really believe in death at all, that we subscribe to the view that when we die we go on living in some other realm, or in some disembodied form. Just to be clear, I believe nothing of the sort. I don't like the euphemistic language of passing on or having gone to sleep, nor do I subscribe to platonic ideas about the immortality of the soul. When you die, you die. As the first letter of St. Paul to Timothy puts it, "God alone is immortal, and then we have the almost legendary Bishop of Durham uh, David Jenkins. I wouldn't put it past God to arrange a virgin birth if he wanted to, but I very much doubt if he would. He carried on in a phone in the article carries on I should say in a phone, and he spoke of the possibility that the disciples had pinched the body of Jesus. Then in October, he took part in a discussion for the Radio 4 series Polls Apart and spoke about the reality of a symbol in history as opposed to the term literally physical. I was very careful about my use of language. After all, a conjuring trick with bones only proves that somebody's clever at a conjuring trick with bones. I am bothered by what I call God and conjuring tricks. I am not clear that God manoeuvres physical things. I am clear that he works miracles through personal responses and faith. Senior figures within the Church of England casting aspersions on the idea of a resurrection, whether that's a a a, a spiritual or a material resurrection and the idea of immortality that results from that senior figures within the church of england not convinced themselves in ideas as fundamental uh, as the virgin birth or the resurrection the bodily resurrection of jesus christ But if you listen to these people talk, they will talk about the truths that can be found in these stories and what we can learn from these stories. They have been hammering home time and again exactly the same kind of points that Jordan Peterson has made his stock in trade. Now the reason for this I propose is because the Church of England... Like Dr. Peterson, the Church of England is full of highly intelligent individuals, highly intelligent theologians that are effectively creating a Christianity that flatters their intellect. The problem with it is is that its selling power is close to zero. To show you exactly what I mean, let me show you some figures here. What I have shown numerous times in the past is that the decline in Christianity in the United Kingdom is stark. What I want to show you here is that that decline is almost entirely made up of Church of England stroke Anglicans.
0: Okay, so Yes, yeah, so I'll end the clip there. And I don't know how much I can add. I, I think Noel Plum did a uh, an absolutely great job there. One thing that really jumped out at me, I think he was reading quotes from some church higher-ups, And I believe it was the canon chancellor, I think uh, Giles Fraser or Fraser was his name. Um, And and he talked about how this high up uh, church official just comes right out and says, no, I don't literally believe in life after death. And I think to those of us on this side of the pond, Even a you know a non-believer like myself, it's still kind of jarring or shocking to imagine a a church official coming out and saying something like that. And I think it goes to show the kind of uh, the disparity or whatever the 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 contrast um, regarding religious attitudes between the United Kingdom and us, and uh, you know the embrace of this kind of watered down form of Christianity. Okay, next day, back through the magic of editing, and as the saying goes, it is coming down, cats and dogs, uh, here in New England. And so, given just how sensitive this microphone is, you just might hear uh, Mother Nature in the background, the rustling of leaves, uh, pouring rain, etc. And it's about 10.40 a.m., October 27th. Uh, I think, uh, well, I don't think I know. There's supposed to be a Halloween party going on tonight that most likely I would have been invited to, but my friend still, I guess, uh, pissed at me for how drunk I got at the last party. Hey, you know, what can I do? I apologized. I even vowed to change my approach to alcohol Uh, how intoxicated I get, that kind of thing, but uh, still no invite. The funny thing is the rest of our friends, uh, even those who are at the same party, all seem cool with me as far as I can tell, but when the host ain't happy with you, eh, you're pretty much screwed. (laughs) So uh, only time will tell, you know, how things play out. But enough about my personal crap. Uh, <laughs> on to the next item. So this is a pretty big story. Now, Ireland's controversial and outdated, I would say, uh, blasphemy law or laws have been in the spotlight for a while now. Uh, but finally, there's a referendum. And this very weekend, I believe, voters are finally getting a chance to decide on, on the matter. I believe Friday, so yesterday, the voting actually would have taken place. And then I think the results are supposed to be in either by tonight or tomorrow, you know, before the weekend is through. And if, like myself, you're a fan of British comedian slash activist Stephen Fry then you may recall that not that long ago, maybe uh, The Way Time Flies might have been a few years back, he, as the article puts it, ran afoul of Ireland's uh, blasphemy law or laws. And uh, that was big in the news for a bit. And I'll actually read a bit from an article from The Atlantic uh, that I believe was published just yesterday. And it looks like it's by Yasmine. Sirhan, or something like that. Apologies, if I'm butchering your name. You'll probably never hear this anyway. Uh, But it's entitled, (laughs) How a Comedian Pushed Ireland Into a Referendum on Blasphemy. Stephen Fry Called God, quote-unquote, stupid in an interview three years ago. Now voters are headed to the polls. And so it begins, On Friday, Irish voters will participate in their second referendum of the year this time to decide whether to remove a prohibition against blasphemy from Ireland's constitution. Like the decision in May to overturn a ban on abortion, and the 2015 decision to legalize same-sex marriage, this vote stands to shift the country away from its traditionally Catholic heritage. And it's like, at this point, okay, so you legalized abortion, same-sex marriage it is legal, Uh, let's fully step out of the dark ages and get rid of this stupid blasphemy thing. And the article continues, The referendum, which coincides with Ireland's presidential election, will ask voters whether they support removing the word blasphemous from Article 40 of their constitution, which states that... The publication or utterance of blasphemous, seditious, or indecent matter is an offense which shall be punishable in accordance with law. A recent poll projects that slightly more than half of the public will support scrapping the offense, with a quarter still undecided. No one has ever actually been prosecuted for blasphemy under the Irish Constitution, but the one time an investigation was even attempted in recent years was enough to catapult the issue onto the national stage. And so uh, I believe they're referring to uh, the situation with Stephen Fry. And uh, it continues... In 2015, the British comedian Stephen Fry appeared on an Irish television program. When quizzed by the show's host about what he would say to God in the afterlife, Fry responded, Why should I respect a capricious, mean minded, stupid God who creates a world so full of injustice and pain? He was accused of running afoul of Ireland's blasphemy laws, and Irish police opened an inquiry. That investigation was eventually dropped, but the high-profile nature of the case sparked a public debate about the efficacy of the country's blasphemy laws. In the aftermath of the Fry Saga, for some reason that reminds me of Dragon Ball Z, like the Cell Saga, but anyway, an alliance of 14 churches, including the Catholic Church, declared the constitutional clause, quote-unquote, largely obsolete and called for its removal. Ireland had actually been considering removing the clause for several years prior. The country's Constitutional Convention, a hundred-member body of citizens and lawmakers established by the government to consult on proposed amendments, had long been debating the blasphemy issue. In 2013, it formally called for removing the blasphemy clause and recommended replacing it with a ban on incitement to religious hatred. Ireland is one of at least 69 countries with laws prohibiting blasphemy. And it's funny, usually when you think of blasphemy laws, you think of some place in the Middle East, uh, not a, a Western nation, you know. Though its penalty is among the weakest, those found guilty are subject to a fine of up to 25,000 euros and least enforced. That's because for much of the law's existence, and here in quotes, there was actually no offence of blasphemy that was ever spelled out. David Kenny, a professor of constitutional law at Trinity College Dublin, told me, not me, but the uh, the author of the article, obviously. <laughs> says it was only after a man sought a civil suit against the Sunday Independent newspaper for printing what he deemed to be a blasphemous cartoon in 1995, it depicted government ministers refusing the Catholic sacrament of communion, that Ireland's Supreme Court formally ruled that it is impossible to say of what the offense of blasphemy consists. This ruling compelled the government to set out a specific definition as part of the 2009 Defamation Act, which defines blasphemy as intentional words or images that are quote unquote grossly abusive or insulting in a relation to matters held sacred by any religion, thereby causing outrage among a substantial number of the adherents. Still, the bar for what constituted blasphemy was set high. The law states that if people find genuine artistic, political, scientific, or academic value in something, it can't be deemed blasphemous. Yeah, and so that's funny. Uh, Those two statements seem to be a complete loggerheads. So on the one hand, something's blasphemous if it's grossly abusive or insulting in relation to matters held sacred by any religion, thereby causing outrage among a substantial number of the adherents. Uh, so you could say, uh, let's say a, a political cartoon uh, satirizing the prophet Muhammad or something like that. Uh, so according to that first statement, you know, that could be considered blasphemy. But then that second statement, the law states that if people find genuine, artistic, political, scientific, or academic value in something, it can't be deemed blasphemous. So you could say that um, a cartoon lampooning the Prophet Muhammad, trying to make some political point, does have political value And, uh, you know, perhaps artistic value, too. And so those two statements seem to kind of negate each other. So I could see how, you know, those laws are there, but no one's been really penalized under them. Nevertheless, I think it is a good thing to just, you know, get rid of them. Once again, just that uh, that sentence kind of gives me the creeps, you know, sends a chill up my spine grossly abusive or insulting in relation to matters held sacred by any religion, thereby causing outrage among a substantial number of adherents. I I think having a sentiment like that in the books is a danger to free speech. I don't think any man-made belief system should be safe from criticism. And to me, religions are just that, man-made belief systems. All right. So I'm going to do one last story. And this actually regards an unfolding story that my friend Crocoduck, who I often mention on the show, follows very closely. Uh, it involves the uh, so-called Museum of the Bible. And I believe uh, they're owned by uh, the folks at Hobby Lobby or something like that, I, I believe. Uh, some Some kind of Uh, right-wing Christian big shots behind the whole thing. But it was suspected for a while that some Dead Sea Scroll fragments they had in their possession were thought to be inauthentic, were thought to be fakes, forgeries, whatever. And they finally came out and admitted themselves And this is a follow-up story by CNN, and it actually, uh, I guess it broke today. It's dated the 27th. And so it's entitled, After Bible Museum Scandal, More American Christians Suspect They Bought Fake Dead Sea Scrolls. And it's by Daniel Burke, uh, CNN's religion editor. And I probably don't even have to explain it. I would imagine that the majority of you listening already have some general idea of what the Dead Sea Scrolls are. Uh, But just in case, the Dead Sea Scrolls are a cache of ancient religious documents belonging to uh, an ancient Jewish religious group known as the Essenes or the Dead Sea community. And these documents or manuscripts were found specifically in the caves of Qumran, located near the Dead Sea. But I'll continue with the article. Days after the Museum of the Bible acknowledged purchasing forged Dead Sea Scrolls, more American Christians say they now suspect that they too have bought pricey fakes. Stephen Ortiz, a professor of archaeology at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, said that he believes several fragments purchased by the seminary since 2010 may not be authentic. We suspect that maybe three of our ten fragments are forgeries, Ortiz said. The seminary trustees are asking, what are we doing with our scrolls? Ortiz said his seminary has sent eight of its fragments to the, oh boy... Where's Tim Danaher when you need him? Bunda Salt. I'm not even trying. It, it looks extremely German. <laughs> BAM for short. I'll, I'll just take that handy little acronym instead. The same German laboratory that tested the Museum of the Bibles fragments. The test results were in- the test results were inconclusive with three of the seminary's fragments, Ortiz said. And they are awaiting further results. Robert Duke, dean of the School of Theology at Azusa Pacific University in California, said the Christian school is considering testing the five fragments it purchased in 2009. And here's a quote. With this new information, we have a new direction for due diligence research, Duke said. In some ways, we all need to lean into the news this week. We will be meeting to assess next steps, including possible testing with BAM." On Tuesday, the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. announced that five of its most valuable artifacts, once thought to be part of the historic Dead Sea Scrolls, are fakes and will not be displayed anymore. The news was not unexpected as multiple scholars, including one who worked for the museum itself, had raised serious doubts about their authenticity. CNN wrote about the questionable artifacts last November. Germany-based scholars tested the museum's fragments and found that five, in quotes here, show characteristics inconsistent with ancient origin, the Museum of the Bible said in a statement. Of the museum's 16 fragments, seven will not be displayed and nine will be tested further, a spokesperson said. Found 70 years ago in caves in Qumran on the western shore of the Dead Sea, the scrolls are considered one of the 20th century's most important archaeological discoveries. With more than 900 manuscripts and estimated 50,000 fragments, it took six decades for scholars to excavate and publish them all. Some scrolls contain the earliest known fragments of what would become revered as Jewish and Christian scripture. In 2002, new fragments began mysteriously appearing on the market, where many were scooped up by evangelicals eager to own a piece of biblical history and find tangible evidence attesting to their belief in the inerrancy of Scripture. Some evangelicals' idolization of Scripture made them easy marks for unscrupulous dealers, scholars say. It was the fertile soil that made the sale of forged Dead Sea Scroll fragments not just easy, but extremely profitable. Said Kip Davis, an expert on the Dead Sea Scrolls at Trinity Western University in Canada, was one of several academics who has tried to warn Christians, including the Bible Museum, about potential forgeries. My hope is that this is something that prompts these institutions to approach these questions with a more critical eye. Since the Bible Museum announcement, controversy has focused on the Green Family, the evangelical billionaires behind the Museum of the Bible. In 2017, the Green Family's company Hobby Lobby agreed to pay $3 million in return artifacts smuggled out of Iraq as part of a settlement with the Justice Department. Scholars have repeatedly questioned their approach to procuring artifacts. But many scholars, particularly those who work with antiquities, say issues with evangelicals and artifacts extend beyond the greens. Since 2002, more than 70 fragments, purportedly part of the famous Dead Sea Scrolls, were sold, many to American evangelicals. According to Norwegian scholar, Arstein Justness, probably butchering that, some of those scraps have reportedly cost millions. Justness? Uh, Ugh, why? Why, why is someone throwing all these crazy names at me? But Bo- I'm sorry to say that your name is crazy. Uh, believes that 90% may be forgeries based on analysis of the text and handwriting. For years, <clears throat> drinking game... Of the week every time I butcher this poor Norwegian scholar's name. For years, Justness and other scholars have been calling on the Greens and other evangelicals to reveal how and from whom they acquired the Dead Sea Scroll fragments. In an interview before the Bible Museum opened last fall, Steve Green told CNN that it looks like there might be kind of accidental omission or typo here. That wasn't. Maybe it should be told CNN that it wasn't sure who sold his family the Dead Sea Scroll fragments? Or he wasn't sure? There's been different sources, but I don't know specifically where those came from. A spokesperson said Green was not available for comment about the German test results. They should tell us where they bought them and show their papers, Justness uh, Drinkup said. (laughs) Oh man, the physical tests are super sexy. (laughs) <laughs> and what the public wants to hear about. But without an object's provenance, it is just unethical and it helps the illicit market. Like justness, and it's a J and it's a Scandinavian name, so maybe it should be pronounced with like a Y. Um, like like justness or justness. Yes, uh, I have no idea. And, th- and this show is going so well pronunciation-wise. Davis said he hopes the scandal will encourage evangelical collectors to be more upfront about the provenance of their Dead Sea fragments. There has to be a stronger focus now on how to handle questions of provenance. That's really where the massive failure in this has taken place. That may be easier said than done. Duke and Ortiz said their institutions were told their fragments were connected to the Kando family sounds like something out of Star Wars, who for decades had been trusted middlemen between buyers in the Bedouins who found the Dead Sea Scrolls. For years, the thinking among scholars has been, if an artifact came from Kando, it's likely legit. It's important to remember that the world of Dead Sea Scroll scholarship is reliant upon artifacts Bedouins found, Duke said. They were not part of Providence archaeological dig. But even before the Bible Museum's tests, Ortiz said he and other scholars had doubts about their supposedly ancient artifacts based on analysis of the handwriting and text. For one, many of the fragments bear snippets from the Hebrew Bible, which is unusual because less than a quarter of all known Dead Sea Scrolls pertain to scripture, but evangelicals and others are known to pay higher prices for them. For what it's worth, even scholars at Harvard University have been fooled by a forgery, Ortiz said, noting the infamous Gospel of Jesus' Wife scandal, a fiasco that hoodwinked a respected scholar and made worldwide news in 2012. All right, but I just thought that was an interesting follow-up or continuation of that uh, Museum of the Bible forgery story. And I guess with that, I'll call this episode a wrap. As always, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, you know the drill. Please like the Facebook page. You can follow the show on Twitter. Check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. If you would like to support the show monetarily, you can do so by using the PayPal widget, the bottom of the Podbean page. There's all that alliteration. Or you can just go to patreon.com slash And support the show for as little as 99 cents a month, and that gives you uh, access to a bunch of bonus content. All right, thanks, brothers and sisters, and uh, happy Halloween. Until next week.